Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion, and today we're going to look at student debt. I think it's fair to say that nobody really wants to ever declare bankruptcy, but some people do have to declare bankruptcy. The one thing, though, that you won't be able to discharge in bankruptcy is your student loans. You'll carry them around for the rest of your life if you're not able to pay them off. Well, our next guest says bankruptcy is the solution to the student loan crisis, so to get what he means, let's bring in Joe Nocera, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Joe, obviously, you know, this idea that you can never discharge your student loans, even in bankruptcy, is is something to be reckoned with. You can spend a fortune getting, you know, an education and then life can intervene, you can end up going bankrupt, but you'll still have those student loans, you know, following you around for the rest of your life. How how do we change that? How, how can that be changed? Good morning. Well, first of all, it's beyond the rest of your life because once you die, the federal government will come after your estate mm. to get <laughs> to get yeah. paid off of the student loan. Um, you know, this has been something that's been going on for about 40 years, uh, starting in the late 60s, and and they made it. The Congress made it more and more difficult, near impossible, to discharge the student loans. Not only those that are granted by the federal government, which is about 90 percent, but also those that are granted in the private market, though, by banks and, and, and institutions that grant student loans. Um, uh, so it is a onerous burden. Uh, the average student loan debt is about $30,000, but there are plenty of people uh, who have debts of 100000 or $150,000. And, you know, in, in the economy that we have had for the last, you know, 15 or, or so years, maybe more, it's been so hard for, for those people to get the kind of jobs that allow them to make monthly payments and, and, and stay straight with their student loans. So, Joe, I think as it relates to the student loan issue, the, what we've heard the most out of politicians is actually forgiving the debt. How would you compare and contrast, I guess, the pros and cons of forgiving the debt versus maybe allowing um, a borrower to go into bankruptcy? Right. Um, well, I... I think, first of all, from a political point of view, forgiving debt is going to be highly contentious. It's just going to be very controversial. There are going to be lots and lots of people who say, you know, I had to pay my loan. Why does this freeloader get, you know, get his loan partially, um, uh, you know, wiped, wiped off the board? So, so that's point one. It's, it's, a political, it's a political problem. Point number two is that, you know, the, the amounts that are being talked about are being between loan forgiveness of between $10,000 and $50,000. So for some people, that will wipe out their loan. For many others, it won't. And they'll still have a lot of uh, money to pay back, just not as much as they had before. The thing about bankruptcy is, number one, it would wipe out the entire loan. But number two, it comes at a price. Nobody, as, 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 you said at the beginning, nobody wants to file for bankruptcy. You know, it hurts your credit. It makes it difficult to buy a house. It maybe sometimes makes it difficult to buy a car for five, six, seven years. Uh, and it takes a while to recover from. So when you file for bankruptcy, you pay a price. So that would help um, 
subdue some of the objections from those who think it's just a, a, a program for freeloaders. Is there, I mean, is there any appetite for it to be done across the board? So I've definitely seen, you know, people talk about maybe doing it for teachers if they put in a certain amount of time at public schools or doing it for people who go work with the Peace Corps for a while. But has anybody's just suggested, has it got anywhere in Congress, this idea that, you know, a, a certain amount of student loans we paid off for every single student, no matter what they study? Um. It's, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, there is an enormous amount of uh, desire to get this done. In the, cons- in the, in the, in the furthest right wing of the, of the Republican Party, there's no appetite for this whatsoever. And that's one of the reasons that I've been suggesting uh, bankruptcy as a, as a possible uh, middle ground. Um, but let me say something else about what you just said about teachers and so on. Um, there's a second aspect to this. If you, file, if, if you bring back bankruptcy, it means that the lenders, the banks, the government are all going to have to be more careful about making loans. That's one of the big problems. They give the money to anybody. They don't have to care whether the person can pay it back or not because they're going to get reimbursed by the federal government. And that's a huge problem. That's called moral hazard. Um, and so, you know, if they're more careful with their lending, that means that you know, working class and poor kids are going to have a much harder time getting loans. So that's where I propose the second part of this, which is to make it much easier to get into these income-based repayment plans where you pay a percentage of your income for a certain number of years um, as your way of paying, of, of paying back your loan. And if you have certain, you could, you could make it so that, you know, if you are in the Peace Corps, or if you are a teacher, or if you do work on an Indian reservation, or, you know, any of those kind of things, that, that the amount would be reduced just because you're doing, you know, what amounts to public service. So I think between bankruptcy and uh, income repayment, uh, you pretty much have the problem solved. Joe, what do we know about uh, President-elect Biden and his thoughts uh, about this issue? Because presumably this might be one of the things he might want to tackle in his first 100 days. I doubt he'll tackle it in his first 100 days because it's okay. too contentious. But I do think he does want to tackle it. He needs to give something to the progressives. Now, uh, what I've heard is that um, what he's looking at is, you know, Elizabeth Warren wants 50000 uh, wiped away. He, and, and, she, and she wants him to do it through executive order. He would like to reduce it simply by $10,000, and he wants to do it through legislation. So it wouldn't look like, it, you know, by fiat, it wouldn't look like he's trying to ram something down people's throats. Um, whether he could get it past legislation, well, a lot of that depends on what happens in Georgia, you know, in, in early January. Um, uh, and so we'll just have to see about that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it it doesn't matter what kind of college you go to, you end up with these crushing debts and then, you know, interest rates that are insane for, for a lot of young people out there that are just trying to give themselves an education. I know that Joe Biden has definitely talked about Pell Grants for everybody, but I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg. Right, Joe? Yes, it is. And, and I would say also about the crushing debt. Don't forget, you know, kids who drop out of school because they can't keep paying, you know, they still have that debt. Yeah. Kids who go to for-profit colleges that are, turn out to be scams, yep. they still have that debt. 
So, I mean, you know, there's a percentage of people for whom the debt is great. They get through college, you know, they have a good life, they have, you know, they get a good job. But there's a whole lot of other people where that doesn't even happen, and they're still stuck with the debt. Yeah, very big issue for a growing number of people. Joe Nocera, thanks so much for joining us. Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read his work and all the work of Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal O-P-I-N-Go. Well, we got another dose of sobering jobless claims this morning, uh, arguably once again raising the uh, incentive for the Fed to remain accommodative and for Congress to move forward on a meaningful piece of fiscal stimulus. Let's get the latest economic outlook with Lindsay Piegza, chief economist at Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, if we step back a little bit, we can certainly see signs that the economy is is through the worst of the pandemic uh, disruption, but there's still a lot of work to do. Given what we heard from Fed Chairman Powell this week, given what we see on the, on the jobless front, other economic data points, where do you think we are in the recovery? Well, I think, I think we've made it through the first, uh, the biggest barrier, the biggest hump, as we saw the worst of the pandemic in the second quarter. But that's not to say that we're not going to have more difficult times ahead, because even if we do see the second round resurgence uh, snuffed out at a relatively faster pace than the first round, Remember, businesses and individuals are already beginning from an extremely fragile position after months of hardship. So it's going to be increasingly difficult for them to continue to weather a storm without some sort of additional artificial support from officials in Washington. So there really has to be some increased pressure on our representatives on Capitol Hill to really do their job and get some of those funds out to uh, hurting individuals and businesses really struggling at this point. How concerned do you think the FOMC is about the situation, Lindsay? I think they're very concerned. I do think that the Fed chairman struck a a very delicate line. On the one hand, he was trying to be uh, optimistic about the improvement that we've seen thus far, particularly in the third quarter with that stellar rise, more than offsetting the decline in the second quarter, at least in percentage terms. But he was also very cautious to say, look, the, the virus is going to dictate the path of the recovery. It's still very uncertain. And while we're optimistic, a number of things have to go right. A number of dominoes have to fall just perfectly in line in order to really navigate ourselves out of this, uh, this unprecedented situation. So I do think the Fed is increasingly concerned about being able to get the economy back on track, but more importantly, back to a position of a longer run, sustainable, improved trajectory. It's not about just a one quarter bounce, but really getting the economy back on a pathway towards potential GDP. Does a $900 billion fiscal stimulus here do that, Lindsay, or do we need even more than that from your perspective? I do think it will help. I I do think it will help stabilize the economy. But again, it depends on the depth and duration of this second round resurgence. If we continue to see businesses shut down, workers sent home well into the first quarter, $900 is not going to do it. So it really depends on how quickly we're able to control the virus and how how uh, really lenient, I would say, local officials are in terms of allowing the private market to return to some semblance of normal market activity. Remember, this isn't a market crisis. This is a health crisis. So the best way to control this, uh, this unprecedented scenario is having a meaningful way of separating the healthy from the sick, something that we don't have at this point. 
What else can the Fed do at this point? Were you surprised at the fact that the SCP skewed a little more positive? No, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily surprised by that. We did anticipate a little bit of an upward revision in terms of the Fed's expectation for growth and unemployment because we have seen vast improvement. In fact, faster than expected improvement, as I mentioned in the third quarter, carrying forward through October and somewhat in November. So it does make sense that the Fed is reflecting that improved baseline scenario. But going forward, I do think that the Fed has put so many tremendous proposals and plans in place, that at this point, there's very little additional they can do to support the market or support the economy. It really has to come from fiscal policy support at this point. And the Fed all but handed that proverbial baton over to our officials in Washington saying, look, we've done everything we can up to this point. Now it's up to you guys to, again, do your job and reach an agreement and get those much-needed funds out to those that are hurting the worst, including small businesses and individuals that have lost their job through no fault of their own, but by the government's own design. Uh, Lindsay, uh, briefly, uh, what's the Stiefel 4Q GDP call and the 2021 GDP call? I do think there's enough strength in October and November to carry growth in, in positive territory in the fourth quarter. So I am looking for low single-digit growth, around 4 or 5% for the fourth quarter. Certainly a decline from that rebound that we saw in the third quarter, but still a very, a very welcomed improvement in terms of growth. Going forward, however, into the first quarter, right now our baseline scenario is less than 1% GDP with a downside risk of the U.S. economy falling back into negative territory if we do see a continued drag out of this second round resurgence without additional support from the federal government. Lindsay, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us and uh, maybe speak to you again before the end of the year. If not, uh, we will talk to you in January. That's Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist at Stiefel Nicholas, joining us there. And Paul, it's really just so fascinating to see the data come in, some of it poor, some of it okay. It really is so obviously a K-shaped recovery. It really is. And uh, I think the concern here is, as Lindsay suggested, not getting a handle in the near term on this uh, pandemic. Another industry that's had a very tough year is the home health business. Those going into people's homes, protecting the aging population and so on. Charlie Young is the CEO of Synergy Home Care, located in New Jersey. It's one of the leading in-home care organizations that operates in 350 markets. Charlie, first of all, before we get on to the vaccine, the vaccine rollout, tell us how your business has been going and, and what changes you've had to make thanks to the pandemic. Well, first of all, Vani, it's great to be here. Thanks for having Thank me. Um, I'm actually uh, out in Arizona, so I missed that beautiful snowstorm <laughs> that you all just had. Uh, the business of home care has, uh, has seen a, uh, quite a bit of demand, as you can imagine. Obviously, uh, people are looking to make sure that they are safe, and uh, one of the safest places to be is at home. Uh, like many industries, senior care, home care, uh, December, this is prime time for us. Um, and the reason for that is generally uh, this is when families get together. This is when uh, families gather, usually for expended, extended period of time. And adult children oftentimes see that mom or dad or another senior loved one of theirs needs more care and more 
more help. Um, we're not having that this year. Um, uh, so we're trying to help people understand how that they can support their loved ones and look for the things that they need uh, to help them con- to continue to thrive at home, uh, even though they might not be there in person. But to your to your point, uh, the business has been been doing quite well because the demand for home care uh, during the pandemic is, is is quite high. Charlie, your employees, they are, boy, just the definition of frontline workers here. A couple points here. How, do, how have they been faring, number one? And number two, um, presumably they will be one of the first to get the vaccine. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no more noble cause than to be a caregiver who goes into another's home uh, to take care of them. Our mission at Synergy Home Care is to help people thrive at home, and that's what these people do every single day. Uh, As you know, uh, the response to the pandemic has been uh, decentralized across the country, uh, with states all having different uh, approaches and oftentimes trickling down to local uh, and county uh, governmental decisions. So, um, you know, what we're seeing is that our home care workers are being treated as essential some places, but not in others. Hmm. Really encouraged. I did get a call from a franchisee of ours in New Jersey this morning. They were called by their county uh, health department uh, yesterday asking for a list of their caregivers so that they could be put on uh, that priority list for the vaccine. And uh, I only uh, wish it was that way all over the country. So, Charlie, talk to us about how franchisee that works. Are all of your home, all of your businesses in the various states franchise run? And uh, and how do they pay you a fee and what do you provide to them? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we are a franchise business. We uh, we really offer the promise to help care-minded, uh, compassionate entrepreneurs build a robust business. We do that in four basic ways. We provide a home care platform, everything that you need to run a home care business from the initial training, the, uh, the software and other tech uh, backbone that you need, uh, and then all the marketing that goes with it. Uh, we provide all the local lead generation marketing, referral partnerships with insurance and, and health organizations, and obviously a network of people who've done this before. Uh, and so when you have over 370 markets around the country, there's a robust group of people who have experience and can help there. That's another area of our business that's grown quite well during the pandemic is the franchising side. We're selling uh, home care franchises. Uh, and I think that's a function of two things. One is you know, the, the economic situation in the country. Many people have been downsized and uh, are out of work and are looking uh, for a, a new chapter in their lives. And then I think when you look at the, uh, the, 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 the upside for home care in the years to come, starts with demographics. Uh, it starts with a, a, a shift in, in, in thinking about the whole healthcare care uh, continuum. It's a, it's a business to be in. And so we've done well there uh, over the last nine months as well. Well, so, I suppose I'm just curious, why would somebody need to buy into a, a franchise if they want to you know, be in the home care business? Can, can they not just do it? Uh, you, could, you could just do it. You would be faced with a much 
steeper uh, learning curve and startup curve because when you when you join a Synergy Home Care franchise, you are going to have all of your systems in place from day one. So that is uh, a thought process as a business owner that you don't need to to go through. You're going to have the software software platform for billing, for scheduling, for uh, recruiting caregivers, all of that sort of thing. You're going to have the marketing platform for lead generation. And because we have a national footprint, we have uh, national partners who are bringing referral business to us. Uh, you know, and so so it, it, it's a it's a it is a way to, to get up and running and. Uh, um, uh, much more, right. much more efficiently. Yeah, go ahead. Interesting, Charlie. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a really an interesting time for you and your business, I'm sure. Charlie Young, Chief Executive Officer for Synergy uh, Home Care. Uh, obviously, seeing increased demand during these pandemic times. Now let's bring in Bloomberg journalist Molly Smith. A fantastic story on the Bloomberg today and it relates to minority-owned underwriting firms and how they benefited from renewed attention on social justice issues, particularly this summer after George Floyd's killing. But they say that actual institutional barriers are keeping them from gaining a bigger share of the corporate debt market and it really is phenomenal. Molly, a great story. First of all, give us a rundown of some of the firms that you're talking about. Sure. So when we talk about diverse underwriters, these are banks that are owned by minorities, women and veterans. So we talked to several of the prominent African-American owned banks like Loop Capital, Blaylock Van. We talked to several veteran owned banks like Drexel Hamilton, Academy Securities. And a lot of these banks really trace their roots back to uh, the civil rights movement. And that's when a lot of them got started and in underwriting bonds for America's local governments. And that's why they've done so well in the municipal bond market where uh, where America's leadership at the local government le- le- level, excuse me, is tends to be much more diverse in nature itself. You transition then to the corporate market and America's companies are hardly as diverse in nature at the leadership level than the cities are. And it just hasn't been as integral and natural of a mission on the corporate market. Mm. So Molly, I know historically some of the challenges for some of these minority owned banks as it relates to uh, the corporate market is uh, lack of adequate capital and maybe even staffing and so on. So what's the, the story there? The biggest obstacle that a lot of the banks will point to is that they are set up as solely investment banks, meaning that they don't have commercial banking abilities as well. And that's what makes the biggest banks on Wall Street such a formidable force in this space, that they are able to provide cheap loans to companies with the expectation of winning the more lucrative capital markets business Mm. in return. And when you're just an investment bank that's not in your wheelhouse, you don't have, you know, provide these credit facilities to companies. So the the lend, these uh, diverse underwriters have had to be much more creative in how they get into deals, and uh, that's that's what a key obstacle that they pointed to that's keeping them from moving forward. Yeah, I mean earlier this year when and Bill Ackman was was bringing his back to sort of the public attention, he pointed to the fact that he'd use minority-owned underwriters for. S- setting up some of the deal but if you looked at it it was actually you know a small sliver of the deal but they did have permanent capital it was going to be you know something and he was trying to get other people on wall street to do this as well there was no downside according to him why are they not doing it what is the big big setback are they afraid of the the big banks like jp morgan and goldman sachs 
I don't, I think that they're starting to come around to it because when the Allstate deal, at least in my opinion, and for definitely a lot of these banks too, was a really big turning point in showing that they, that Allstate had borrowed $1.2 billion, I believe it was last month. And this was the biggest deal ever managed solely by diverse firms. And Allstate is a major U.S. company. Certainly they have banking relationships with the biggest Wall Street banks. And they actually consulted with some of those banks before this bond sale. And all of them, including Brian Moynihan from Bank of America, said they thought this was a great idea and something that Allstate should definitely pave the way in doing. So I think there is more receptiveness to us, but certainly there is just that stigma. It's not you know, a, a hard and set rule in any way. But companies just naturally tend to look at their lending partners when looking at capital markets activities. Is there any incentive for companies to change? I'm thinking about ESG investing. Is that maybe could be a criteria for certain investors to uh, say, hey, we want your advisors, whether it's your legal advisors or your financial advisors, to be more diverse. Is that an angle, perhaps? Certainly. And that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of companies, they can fulfill DNI mandates through their capital markets group as well. So I think a lot of them are starting to look at this in a new light. And certainly you're seeing as well with Goldman and NASDAQ requiring companies to have diverse leadership in the, at the board level, uh, that it's becoming much more significant that there are going to be real consequences that if you could be delisted from an exchange, if you don't have, if you're not inclusive in your board representation, that's a really big deal. So I think companies are really going to be waking up to this more, but certainly that is what these diverse banks are looking for, that this isn't just a 2020 thing, that it is a sustainable trend. Uh, you quote Eric Van Standefer, who's the founder and chief executive officer of Blaylock, saying they're still giving us crumbs, just giving us more crumbs. It seems to be so, you know, at the margin, you know, it, it needs to be a much more major sort of movement, doesn't it? That's exactly it, because these firms, uh, that's why Allstate was so significant that they took on lead manager roles versus in the Google deal, which he was talking about. Google brought on 15 diverse co-managers for this deal. So that means that they walked away with just $260,000 in fees each versus the three biggest underwriters got more than $7 million each. So it's just like, of course, you want to spread the wealth, so to speak. But when you include so many firms on one deal, it's just being spread out among that many more people. Hey, Molly, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this uh, story. Really well reported. Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.